according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me tonight as we get started in the book of Numbers. We are in Numbers 30 and 31 tonight, I believe. Unless I'm mistaken, I'll double check that here in a moment. Numbers 30 and 31. I am not mistaken. I am correct. But I tell you, after last night, it wouldn't shock me at all if I'm forgetting everything related to the different things that we study. All right, so Numbers chapter 30 and Numbers chapter 31. Would you believe it? This is day 70. Day 70 in our Through the Bible uh, reading schedule. So uh, God in His grace has allowed us to uh, to complete 69, and tonight is 70, tomorrow is 71, and uh, on we just keep on going. So wrapping up our 10th week and uh, trusting that by His grace we'll get through uh, 42 more after this one. So uh, just trusting in uh, in His grace provision. Before we do get started this evening, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together. We call upon Your faithfulness once again, Father, to bless our time in Your truth. Uh, open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I realized, or somebody was asking me a question earlier, and I realize it's been a while since I've advertised the TTB website. Also, uh, we have various folks that are just randomly coming across the YouTube channel and uh, finding the videos and jumping on board. So it's probably worth our time every few classes or so, once you know a month or whatnot, just to let folks know that there is a companion website to um, the YouTube channel, and besides AustinBibleChurch.com, the main church website, but we also have TTB2022.com, and that's TTB, short for Through the Bible, and 2022, the year that we're doing this. So um, you don't have to log in if you don't want to, but if you do, then the website can track your progress. Uh, you can just log in anonymously or, or not even log in at all and just click on the reading plan there and you'll see the daily schedule and it's organized by month and so you can just uh, figure out what day this is. This is uh, March the 9th and uh, and then just kind of track the day there and you'll have the daily reading, you'll have the the um, the Bible verses there to read, you'll have the YouTube video to watch, you'll have the notes, the outline is there. And so this will be a very handy website for you to use in conjunction with the YouTube channel. In fact, I think it's preferable to the YouTube channel given the fact that the, the video's right there. It's embedded from the YouTube channel onto this page. And so you can be watching that while you take those notes. And some people are taking those notes and copying and pasting them, putting them into Logos note files and doing other things with them there too. And uh, and we do recommend that as well if if you're interested in that. So that's the uh, the web page there. All right, and I said this. I said this was uh, March 9th because that is March 9th. But the class we're teaching tonight is the class for March 11th. That's the issue. Okay, we are uh, recording these a little bit ahead of time. So depending on who's listening and what they're doing, they might be watching these on the on the actual calendar date, or they might not be. All right. Did that help? Did that clarify matters or did I just make matters worse? (laughs) Sometimes I wonder. All right. We do want to start, though, with some Q&A. And uh, if there's a microphone ready to go, we can run the microphone around the room. And then we can take live questions from the studio audience. I did have one that came in by email, so let me start with that. Also, hopefully we have the, uh, the chat window open on the YouTube channel. This was a great question that came from Lance and Glenda Bingley. How was the true humanity of our Savior ensured if there were Nephilim post-flood? And that's a great question, and I understand that there are some folks who don't accept the post-flood Nephilim as being uh, real. 
Uh, but we did see in Numbers chapter 13, we also saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And so they are listed in Numbers 13. We also have references to them in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and 2. We have other references to Nephilim post-flood. And I think when we see the equivalent expressions like Rephaim and we see the uh, the other terms that apply to the giants, I think we have a broader understanding of what the Nephilim are all about. So uh, to me it's not really a question of are their Nephilim after the flood, because Genesis 6 4 says there are. It says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. So if uh, someone's going to defend or try to defend the position that Nephilim were only on the earth during the days of Noah, then uh, I'm sorry, but the plain language of verse 4 says, and also afterwards. So there were, there were pre-flood Nephilim and also post-flood Nephilim. And how is that possible? If, if the flood destroyed them all? Yes, the flood destroyed them all, but Satan was producing more after the flood because this is how you make a Nephilim. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, okay? Or we can be more blunt about it, when fallen angels have sex with human women. And they impregnate those human women and the hybrid offsprings of fallen angelic fathers and, and, and human mothers are the Nephilim. Okay? And so that's how they were on the earth in those days. And then even though the flood wiped them all out, they were again on the earth afterwards. And uh, one of the prime passages that we saw the other day was number 30, uh, 13. There we also saw the Nephilim. And then a description how the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. We're going to see more references in Deuteronomy as far as the Ammonites are concerned and the Moabites and and different uh, words for Nephilim that they had in their own languages. And uh, so stay tuned for that. That's coming up in the next week or two as we deal with, uh, with the issue there. The one thing I've heard in contradiction to this, uh, I had, I was at a conference and someone was defending the view that, well, this is the word of scared um, spies. And so the ten faithless spies that were scared, they wanted to go back to Egypt. So this might not actually be true. It's just the words out of their mouth that they said they saw Nephilim, and it's not actually God saying that they saw Nephilim. And I thought it was clever, or at least it was worth discussing, uh, but the fact is, is that Okay, those are the words of the faithless spies, but we also have the words of the faithful spies. And Caleb and Joshua never called them on it. They never said, you're lying. There's no giants in the land. Caleb and Joshua just simply said, this is the land God's giving us. Who cares if there's giants in the land, right? So if, if this was a lie, then Caleb and Joshua could have easily refuted it and said, you know, you're lying. There weren't, there weren't giants there. But that's not the argument that they made. So I would, uh, I would take it from there. Anyway, the question though was asked, how was the true humanity of our Savior ensured if there were Nephilim post-flood? And that's a legitimate question because the, the uh, involvement of the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6, I believe, was an attack on the humanity uh, and the promise of the seed of the woman that was given. I think um, clearly God didn't permit it to endanger all of humanity. We have the expression, for example, um, let's see, that they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Seems like God had given them free reign and, and a lot of permissive will to do that. Maybe after the flood he clamped down on that quite a bit. Also it says that all flesh had corrupted its way upon the earth. That every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And so that's a description that does not come back later. That uh, yes there was Nephilim production after the flood, but it wasn't as widespread and it wasn't as globally impactful as it was before the flood. So I think that's a good answer too. Robert, do you have a follow up on that? We can get the microphone over there. I'm going to use a Hebrews phrase and say somewhere in Scripture it says that Satan's kingdom is divided. And I got a hunch after the flood, it might not have been easy, as easy to recruit these suicide bombers mm-hmm. uh, because they saw what happened to their predecessors in this stuff that as soon as they were, I guess, done with the thing, they were apprehended and locked up. 
Well, that's a fact. Yeah, every every fallen angel that procreates is bound in chains and, of darkness, and that had to have gotten around. Mm-hmm. And I've got a hunch after the flood, there were fewer volunteers for this. Also, even on Satan's behalf, I mean, Satan probably changed tactics as well, so as to not keep losing so many top lieutenants in that basis. And obviously by the time you get to the New Testament in the Gospels, the tactic is clearly one of demon possession to demonize, uh, uh, to demonize human beings rather than to produce new giants. So I think that demonstrates another change of tactics as well. And you're right, he did say a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. So, All right, Tams has a question. We'll cross the aisle again. We're very bipartisan tonight. We've crossed the aisle twice already. <coughs> Sorry to keep another Nephilim question. Uh-huh. Can a Nephilim produce another Nephilim? I know fallen angel with human women, they right. have a Nephilim and then so and then can he and then is it or does it have to be another always a fallen angel? Anyway, you know my point. Yeah, the it's the scripture doesn't really prove it one way or the other. Uh the, the general thought is no, that they were, are likely sterile like most hybrids, like a, you know, a, a mule might not be sterile or might not be uh, reproducible. Um, but then there are references to clans, the, the clans of the Anakim, the clans of, of the sons of Anak and things like that. Also, it's, there's manuscript questions about Goliath. Did he have five sons or did he have five brothers? Uh, what was the nature of that? So... Um, anyway, it's not. I'd say it's an open question at this point as to how reproducible they were. Yeah. Not sure what the siren was about, but we can pray for them. Father, we pray for wherever that siren's going. All right. And Lee, you had a question too? Okay. I, I had that similar question that Tam's just asked. That's, um, but mm-hmm. sons of Anak, what does that mean? Oh, Anak uh, would be, yeah, we'll talk about that in Deuteronomy. Uh, There was an actual person by that name who was himself Nephilim and then his descendants. And yeah, and they encounter them when they they are east of the Jordan River still and they're attacking uh, Sihon and Og. Oh, we already passed that chapter. And uh, Og was the one with the huge bedstand. But we had very, there's a short account described in Numbers. We're going to get more detail in, in Deuteronomy, strangely enough. Yeah. Yeah. So stay tuned. Appreciate that. Are there any YouTube questions that are coming in on the chat? No, I posted a test message just to make sure that there was no Okay. But your test message is there? And nobody else is uh, chiming in? Somebody said they tried last week when I know for a fact we had the uh, the live chat was on and they uh, they claimed that the live chat was not on uh, from wherever they were, Pennsylvania or wherever that was that they were logging in from. So, okay, all right. Well, if you spot something, let me know. All right. So I'm going to mark that question as answered, and if um, if if we need a follow up to that, we'll uh, let Lance and Glenda indicate that. Any additional questions? I can give a last call here in the the live studio audience. All right, Dean, we'll give Dean a question. In the future, does Satan still have the capacity to do what's been discussed? Yes, totally. In fact, I believe that's part of the reason why. So for example, we are told in the book of Jude and in Second Peter that they're uh, in chains of darkness. And the, and the consequence is because they um, did not keep their own estate and uh, and the events of what they were doing here in procreating. And I think it's Second Peter chapter 2, or it's also in, uh, in Jude, under chains of darkness, right? And so it's curious too, because what's the first thing that happens to Satan in Revelation chapter 20? He's bound in chains. He's put in chains, he's cast in the abyss. And so... Um, is that because he produced an Nephilim 
in, in the tribulation or prior to the tribulation. And that would be consistent with the seed of the woman, seed of the serpent language from Genesis chapter 3. I, I take that literally. I try to be as literal as I can every chance I get. And if the seed of the woman is the literal virgin-born uh, human humanity of, of Jesus Christ, then I think the seed of the serpent also has to be literal or I'm not being fair to Genesis 3. And so I take the seed of the woman literally, I take seed of the serpent literally, and I believe Antichrist will be the Nephilim offspring of, of Satan. Based on uh, Satan not knowing God's timing, then this could be an ongoing event on his part? No. No. No, I, I don't think Satan is going to risk procreating until he knows for a fact that the church is gone. Okay, th- so then there's a time window. Sure. Because that takes a little bit of time, you know, 25, 30 years. Babies are not born overnight. That's right. And, and, a, and a newborn, up. somebody that was just born this morning, is not ready to take the reins of the revived Roman Empire uh, for, you know, a day or two. So it's going to be, yeah, there is time. And, and that's why just because the rapture happens does not mean the tribulation starts the very next day. Tribulation starts with a signing of a covenant the signing of the covenant between Antichrist and Israel. That's what starts the 70th week, not the rapture of the church. Where are we at as it relates to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit during that time frame, or that gap, I'll call it? Oh, there isn't any. Yeah, the the Holy Spirit departs with the the church. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Oh, excellent questions. I appreciate all of them. Okay, last chance for YouTube. Anything there? Okay. Oh, somebody popped up to say, hey, it's working? Oh, that's pretty cool. All right. Thank you for doing that. Boy, our channel's growing. We're getting comments now. All right. Well, thank you for running the microphone. Appreciate that. Let's get to Numbers chapter 30. I I said last night that this was um, one of my favorite chapters uh, when the kids were small. Uh, I would use this chapter with my daughters, actually, and, and with my sons. Uh, because uh, I think young people need to pay attention. There's principles in here that uh, we want to be clear on. And the feminists may not like it, but that's okay. God did not put me on this earth to make feminists happy. Uh, He put me here to teach the truth. And so uh, this is what the Word says, and this is how we preach it. So let's look at Numbers chapter 30. We have to cover 30 and 31 tonight. Uh, Chapter 30, the Pericope heading says, The Law of Vows. And it begins here, um, the new generation is given reminders concerning vows and how seriously the Lord takes every vow. We've had previous lessons on vows in Exodus and Leviticus, and uh, now we're getting a reminder here. And, And if a lot of this seems redundant, it's because it is. It's because the Exodus generation has now, virtually all of them have all departed. There's Caleb, Joshua, and Moses that are still alive of those that were, and Moses is about to die. So there's Caleb, Joshua, and Moses of those that were over 20 when they walked through the Red Sea. Everybody else is already departed. And so there's a lot of reminders, a lot of redundancy that the next generation, the wilderness generation, has to be taught what their parents were taught in, uh, back in the day. So uh, reading now from the Bible, I'm going to do a better job highlighting, I'm going to move my cursor there so you can tell if I'm reading from the left or the right. I'm reading from the Bible. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the word which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. I mean, there you go. You said it. You vowed. God's going to hold you to it. He is the God of truth, and He will hold you to your vows. It is a binding obligation. Also, if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by an obligation, now here's the, here's the issue though, in her father's house, in her youth, we're going to start to see some differences. First of all, we changed genders. We went from a man making a vow. Now we're dealing with a woman making a vow. And with the woman making a vow, we've got different 
stages of life to deal with. Uh, stages where she's uh, a young uh, girl, where she's under her father's authority, and then when she's given in marriage, and so she goes from being a daughter to being a wife. These are the changes that take place. So let's start with the, uh, the daughter in her father's house. So if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by an obligation in her father's house in her youth, and, and it doesn't matter what the vow is, right? It could be anything. And we have examples, uh, you know, Jephthah had his tragic vow where he vowed his daughter and uh, didn't know it at the time, but that's what it ended up being. Um, and, but you can think of other vows. Hannah made a vow because she was so desperate for a son and she promised the Lord if, if he gives her a son that she would dedicate that son to, uh, to his service. And that's how Samuel ended up entering into, into priestly service as well as the prophetic office God designed him for. So those examples of vows, I'm sure there's more, but those are the examples that, that I can think of here on, at the moment. All right, so let's get back to this now. A woman who makes a vow to the Lord, but she's a young person, not always legendary for clear thinking, young people, right? And she makes this vow. Now, her father hears her vow. Dad gets word of it. Her father hears her vow and her obligation by which she has bound herself, and her father says nothing to her. Then all her vows shall stand, and every obligation by which she has bound herself shall stand. That's if the father hears about it and stays silent. But if her father should forbid her on the day he hears of it, none of her vows or her obligations by which she has bound herself shall stand. And the Lord will forgive her. Why? Because her father had forbidden her. And this is huge. And you think, what possibly could there be that would cause the God of truth to sanction the violation of a vow? or the invalidation of a vow, or a veto. I'm calling this a veto, by the way. So let me move over to the left side now. Notice my cursor moved. I'm going to try to be consistent with this so that hopefully folks can follow back and forth. And, and, and I get that. I don't want anyone to, to, please, the Bible is the Bible. My notes are my notes, and they are not equal, right? They're not even comparable in, in any description. So um, we got to keep these things straight. All right, reading now from my notes. A father has a veto over his daughter's vow. Likewise, a groom has a veto over his bride's premarital vow. We'll talk about that next when we get to verses 6 through 8. But now notice, let me get back to the, to the Bible now. Um, it has to be on the day he first hears of it. The father has to be prepared. He has to be in tune. And first of all, if he's caught by total surprise out of left field, well, shame on him. How does he not, you know, know whatever it is that his daughter is, is, is vowing? How does he not know? How is he oblivious? He should be more in tune with what she has going on. And, but on the day that he hears of it, he has to know, okay, hopefully it's early in the day so he can spend some time in prayer. Uh, you know, if it's an hour before sun goes down, then he's got to hurry. Um, but on the day that he hears of it, that's his one and only opportunity to veto, to say, nope, I release you from that. And he has the privilege to do so. He has the permissive will from God the Father to do so. And this is, again, part of the responsibilities of modeling the begetter and the begotten one, right? The, the role that, that, uh, that is built into the design of humanity. And it's the father who has that, not the mother, the father who has that responsibility, that headship within the marriage and within the family. But if he says nothing to her, you know, the, uh, the pocket veto, whatever you want to call it, um, basically the argument of silence, I guess, well then it, it stands, Okay, it absolutely stands. And that's another snare. That's a huge problem because men are very quick to just clam up if they don't know what to say. And, uh, and just, well, you know, and so they don't want the confrontation. Or, oh, and they don't want, so they just don't say anything. And God says, that's not an answer. If you don't say anything, then that is acquiescence. That is, uh, by default, that is approval. It is a tacit approval if you just let it, let it stand by your inaction. 
Okay, God, uh, you're not going to be glorifying Jesus Christ by your inaction. Um, so say something. At the very least, say, I approve of this vow. I approve of what you vowed, and I'm going to hold you to it. I could invalidate it, but I'm going to hold you to it. So there it is. Okay, and uh, or say no. That's the father's prerogative. Okay, and if you want to rail against this as some kind of um, patriarchal privilege, or you want to rail against you know some kind of patriarchy thing, um, realize the son has no such out. He has no such escape clause. Only the daughter. All right, the man is held to his vow, but the daughter has a uh, level of protection that the son that the, the uh, son does not have. All right, so now this is the first opportunity. God is a God of double chances, second chances. He's a God of grace, double portion. The, the girl's going to get a second shot at this. If Dad lets it stand, her husband will then have a chance. So let's uh, look at these next verses here. Verse six. However. If she should marry while under her vows, and and obviously a girl that's under something like this, that's got to be dealt with in the negotiations for the uh, for the wedding, right? The the groom and the groom's father and and the bride and the bride's father when they're coming together to for the um, the, the horse trading that happens with the okay, it is a uh, it is a, a it is an economic transaction at that point. If the girl is under an obligation of that sort, the, the groom's got to know. Okay, you can't just spring that on him after, uh, you know, after the wedding. So, if she should marry while well under the vows or the, or the rash statement of her lips by which she has bound herself, and I think the idea of a rash statement is it's not something she thought through, you know, um, and her husband hears of it. But again, the same stipulation. If he says nothing to her on the day he hears of it, then her vows shall stand, and her obligations by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if on the day her husband hears of it, okay, and this would be also, by the way, when the uh, just the engage the engagement itself is counted as binding, and so you know uh, they don't have to be legally wed if they are under the contractual obligations of an engagement. That's the, the husband's opportunity to veto the foolish vow. So if on the day her husband hears of it, he forbids her, then he shall annul her vow, which she is under, and the rash statement of her lips by which she has bound herself, and the Lord will forgive her. So that's now her second opportunity for the, you know, get out of jail free card or whatever. In in uh, her, her dad has the opportunity to veto it, her uh, husband, her uh, fiance, has the opportunity to veto it. And so that's what I gave you in the notes under point two and point three. The father has veto over his daughter's vow. The groom has veto over his bride's premarital vow. And so this this is establishing a, a, a principle as far as spiritual headship in the home and the duties of a shepherd, the duties of of, uh, of, of protective uh, uh, custody, if you will, of uh, not to you know throw your daughters in a burqa and lock her in a tower somewhere in a, in a harem. We're not constructing harems, but on a spiritual basis, what we're saying is is looking after the well being of your daughters and and then recognizing that you are handing her to a young man that will take over those duties. So uh, when. Uh, you know, when you're considering who it is that's uh, appropriate for your daughter, uh, a huge consideration is he is he a spiritual leader? Is he going to take uh, over those uh, those duties? All right. Well, what about a widow? What about a divorced woman? What about um, does she have a protection? I mean, as a widow, as a divorced woman, she doesn't have a husband. What's what's her escape clause? She doesn't have one. Verse 9, the vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, everything by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. Okay, So one of the things you lose when you lose a husband is not, I mean, you lose somebody that can reach the top shelf, somebody that can stomp on spiders, somebody that can, you know, 
you losing the spiritual shepherd, the spiritual protection, the um, the one that will defend you before God the Father to invalidate a vow. And uh, that's uh, part of the detriment of being a widow or being um, a divorced woman. You don't have the, the spiritual protection there. However, if she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by obligation with an oath and her husband heard it but said nothing to her and did not forbid her, then all her vows shall stand and every obligation by which she bound herself shall stand. So this is the um, husband's veto over the wife's vow in verses 10 through 12. So if she vowed in her husband's house, she's no longer the youth, she's no longer the young uh, maiden that she was in her father's house, she's now a married woman in her husband's house. Same thing, the day he hears of it. Um, on the day he hears, whatever proceeds out of her lips shall uh, shall stand unless he vetoes it. Okay? If her husband indeed annuls them on the day he hears them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning the obligation of herself shall not stand. Her husband has annulled them and the Lord will forgive her. So that's the, uh, that's the issue there. And so the, part of this comes in when we talk about you know, the, the dynamic of, of leadership and the role of husbands and wives and marriage and all the things that go into that. Does the wife have a veto over the husband's decisions? No, because the husband stands before the Lord. But the husband does have a veto over her decisions. She's his helper. She was created for his sake, not the other way around. So every vow in every... Let me get to verse 13 and following here. The father's veto, the groom's veto, or the husband's veto... They must be expressly declared in order to annul the vow. Silence equals confirmation of the vow. So as we read it in verses 13 through 16, every vow and every binding oath to humble herself, her husband may confirm it or her husband may annul it. But if her husband indeed says nothing to her from day to day, then he confirms all her vows or all her obligations which are on her, and he he has confirmed them because he said nothing to her on the day he heard them. And if I was the husband in the situation, I'd I'd have a lot of questions. (laughs) What's up with all these vows? What are you you doing? Okay, because none of them are commanded. None of them are, I mean, they're all just volitional. They're all just, nothing under Mosaic law says you have to take a vow. Why are you doing this? What are these vows about? What is it in your spiritual walk as unto the Lord that's impelling you to to do all these vows? But if he indeed annuls them after he has heard them, then he shall bear her guilt. If he tries to retroactively come along, you know, days later and say, I'm sick of this vow you're under, too late. And then Notice he can still annul them, but now he he becomes the the oath breaker. He becomes the the one that will come under God's discipline, bearing her guilt. So these are the statutes which the Lord commanded Moses as between a man and his wife, and as between a father and his daughter, while she is in her youth in her father's house. It's a great principle, and it really is. All right. Which gets us now to chapter 31, the slaughter of Midian. Moses' final work assignment as the national leader of Israel is to take vengeance upon the Midianites for the Baal Peor incident, the stuff we were looking at on whatever day that was, Sunday, I guess, when we were looking at Baal Peor. We were looking at all that fornication, the public fornication taking place, and the great, yeah, the 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 hero Phineas, my hero, that went in there with a spear and took care of that with one fell swoop. And, um, well, because of that episode, when all of those were dying of the plague, there's, uh, there's, a, there's a recompense that's coming. And so uh, we can read it here. All right. Numbers 31, verses 1 and 2, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take full vengeance for the sons of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you will be gathered to your people. So he knows what his last work assignment is here. Uh, We say his last work assignment. He has a few more things he's going to do after this. Moses spoke to the people saying, arm men from among you for the war. 
that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. So this is going to be a select committee. This is going to be, uh, it's not going to be one of the, the military battalions or brigades. This is going to be a, uh, a volunteer force. It's actually going to comprise of, uh, of elements from all of the tribes. A thousand from each tribe, or an elef from each tribe. Of all the tribes of Israel you shall send to war. So they were furnished from the uh, thousands of Israel, a thousand from each tribe, twelve thousand armed for, mo- uh, for war. Or an elef armed for war, twelve of them. And Moses sent them, a thousand from each tribe, to the war. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, to war with them. Now that's unusual. Because you might recall when we were doing the, the musters, when we were enumerating the, the armed forces of, of Israel, we did not include Levi. The tribe of Levi was not included. We had the, the, uh, the eastern camp that had the three tribes, the southern camp, western camp, northern tra- camp. All uh, four cardinal directions had three tribes each. And we, we went through all that. We went through the breakdown of which tribe had, had the leadership in each of those, uh, in each of those uh, marches. And, uh, and Levi was exempted. Levi was not uh, marshaled for military service. But for this punitive expedition, I guess, you know, <laughs> the Lord just said, well, you know, Phineas is pretty good with a spear, <laughs> you know, uh, or whatever the case may be. Also realizing that this is uh, spiritual warfare as well as physical warfare. So he's tasked with leading this particular task force. And I might you think of this as a task force, if you will. It's a, it's an elite team that's brought together. You know, think of Force Ten from Navarone or whatever. This is this is Force Twelve with Phineas, <laughs> okay? And he's leading these either twelve thousand. Uh, I think that's probably likely, um, or it's just twelve mighty men, like the mighty men of David. You know, if if uh, these mighty men are going forth and doing a great feat just amongst the the twelve of them, okay? You can actually read it either way as we've been studying throughout the book of of Numbers. In the notes though, I do believe it was 12,000, literally thousand, taking the Eliphaz thousand there. Led by Phineas the priest. They had the holy vessels and trumpets among them. The holy vessels though are not magical guarantees of military victory. Just because they're going forth as we read it here. Right. So as we see in verse 6, Phineas the son of Eleazar the priest to war with him and the holy vessels and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. So I suspect, could this be the Ark of the Covenant? They tried that later. Could it be the the, uh, candlestick? Could it be the, the table? Did they just take all the furnishings out of the tent? Or is it simply the trumpets, the trumpets that they blow when they have the, the trumpet blasts? But I think they have holy vessels there and the trumpets. If First uh, Samuel 4 is an indication, this is uh, against the Philistines, this is later, this is during the, the time of the judges and uh, in a very sad period of Israel's history. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 4, Israel had gone out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in Aphek. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord that it may become uh, come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. It's not going to work, okay? It's not a magic power device that you know allows you to win every battle if you just march the ark out there in front of you. Um, but what prompted them to think of this? Might it be the case that back in the chapter we're looking at tonight in Numbers 31, when it said that Phineas took those vessels with him into the battle, is the ark counted as a vessel? I guess that's the question. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, 
It's a generic word. It could be a tool, it could be a weapon, it could be a, an implement, it could be a vessel, it could be a cup. You know, like, uh, you know, how, but how intimidating is it when you go into battle and you've got all the drinking cups that Belteshazzar was using for his? He, he threw a big beer bash in Babylon that night that the Persians defeated the Bab- uh, Babylonians and he, they were drinking out of the holy vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had plundered out of Jerusalem. Yeah, I probably would have mentioned the ark. All right. In any event, the holy vessels, whatever those vessels happened to have been, they were not a magical guarantee of military victory. <laughs> okay? As a subsequent Phineas will learn, and that's the other parallel with 1 Samuel chapter 4, is that this is a different Phineas. You have um, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, that were uh, with the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And so they lose that battle and then the Philistines capture the ark and it's just, it's just an ugly chapter. Okay? So we'll get to that when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 4. The war against Midian is a total victory for Israel as we see starting in verse 7. They made war against Midian just as the Lord had commanded Moses and they killed every male. No prisoners. Everyone dies. Okay? If someone tried to surrender, they weren't taking it. No prisoners, no quarter. Everyone dies. And they killed the kings of Midian. How many kings does Midian have? We learn five. Five kings of Midian. Uh, along with the rest of their slain. And, uh, and so it's kind of curious. There's a number of other nations that did something similar. The Philistines did something similar where they would have five kings or five champions, five royal cities of the Philistines. And here's five kings of, of Midian. Evi and Rechem and Zur and Hur and Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with a sword. Aha, what was he doing there? You find uh, that he's there again consulting as, a, as an advisor, as a as a uh, purveyor of curses or whatever it is he's there for. I think he was involved, in, and, and the text tells us that. Revelation tells us that he counseled them in how to seduce the Israeli men in the, in the Baal Peor incident. That he said, I'll never curse them, but we can get God to administer the divine discipline himself if we turn them to idolatry. And, and he was right. So uh, the five kings of Midian are slain. Balaam the Gentile prophet is also killed. Women, children, cattle, flocks, and goods are plundered. So let's take a look at the plunder here. Verses 9, 11, and 12. So verse 9, the sons of Israel captured the women of Midian and their little ones and all their cattle and all their flocks and all their goods they plundered. They burned all the cities where they lived and all their camps with fire. And they took the spoil and all the prey, both of man and of beast, and they brought the captives and the prey and the spoil to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the congregation of the sons of Israel to the camp at the plain of Moab, which are by the Jordan opposite Jericho. Again, we've got to stress this. They are so close to the conquest at this point. By the time this battle is complete, they're getting ready to cross Jericho and go in, or cross the Jordan River and go in there to... Um, the conquest. All right. So women, children, cattle, flocks, and goods were plundered. Okay, This is the nature of war. This has been the nature of war from the ancient time to, medi- to the classic period, to med- the medieval period, to the Renaissance. It's only been in very recent times that um, plunder has been banned. Uh, and this is part of our modern sensitivities of of how war should be conducted with the United Nations and the Geneva Conventions and and all the rest. So our military today does not plunder. Uh, According to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, we do not plunder. Even uh, the claiming of souvenirs is banned. And when I came back from Desert Storm, I didn't come back with any plunder or any souvenirs uh, because we don't do that. We also don't collect uh, booty. We also don't, because the, the, uh, the prince of, of uh, Kuwait tried to give us $10,000 each. And, uh, and President Bush said, no, we, uh, the American military are not uh, mercenaries. They're not for hire. And uh, 
which was a lie, you know. We are <laughs> just the individual foot soldiers don't get the uh, get the bribes that uh, that you know the the upper levels do. Anyway, so President Bush declined my ten thousand dollars for me, which I could have been happy to receive since I was engaged to be married, and uh, that would have been a very nice wedding gift on the uh, the occasion there. All right, let me get past that. Moses' after-action debriefing was not a pleasant one. Do you think he was happy about this or not happy about this? Yeah, well I give it away already with the point. Point four, Moses' after-action debriefing was not a pleasant one. And this is something too that surprises some people. You know, uh, when, when King Saul came back from his victory over Agag, you know, he thought things were great, he's celebrating, and Samuel was not happy. Same thing here, they come back from the plunder and Moses is not happy. And so just when you think you're, you're, you know, you're gonna, you, made the, you made the big guy happy, he's not. Okay? Like the, the men that brought reports to David about Saul's death, they thought, hey, we're going to get rewarded here. No, David struck them down <laughs> for bringing him that bad news and for claiming that they had uh, raised their hand against the Lord's anointed. All right. Verses 13 through 18, Moses and Eleazar the priest and all the leaders of the congregation went out to meet them outside the camp. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the captains of thousands and the captains of hundreds. Keep in mind, we've been, we've been making those observations. Those are the officers. Those are the commissioned officers. And, and how Israel organized their army was into hundreds and into thousands. They were structured into their maoth, those are the hundreds, and they were structured into their elef, or elephim, those were their thousands. And so all of the hundreds and all of the thousands, there were commanding officers that were assigned. And that's why we, we looked at those numbers and we saw the number on average of elephim per meoth and how they were structured when we looked at the military muster of chapter 1 and chapter 26. So you have the captains of thousands and the captains of hundreds who had come from service in the war. And Moses said to them, have you spared all the women? Why did you leave the women alive? They didn't leave the men alive. Why did they leave the women alive? What did they think they were doing? Are they deciding, are they picking and choosing which of God's commands they're going to obey and which of God's commands they can, they can ignore or pretend God did not uh, command it? Have you spared all the women? Behold, you remember who these women are, right? (laughs) These caused the sons of Israel through the council of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. These were the women that led to that judgment, to that destruction. And what are you going to do with them? You're going to keep them? You gonna marry them? Are they your are they your concubines now? Are they your sex slaves now? What are you gonna do with these women? You know? Are you are you missing those good old days from back when <laughs> I mean, what are you thinking? Okay? Are you missing what those women were doing back then and you want to do more of that? Anyway. Some um some some rhetorical questions don't have good answers, so you just, you know no excuse, and you accept the judgment. Um, it's like, you know, a parent asking your child, what are you thinking? More often than not, they're not thinking. So it's, it's not a question that has an easy answer. Anyway, these caused the sons of Israel. All right, so now therefore, kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has known a man intimately, but the girls who have not known a man intimately, in other words, the young Pre, uh, pubescent, pre, you know, the virgin girls who have not known man intimately, spare for yourselves, okay? And you should and camp outside the camp seven days. Whoever has killed any person, whoever has touched any slain, yeah, keep in mind, after these wars, they're all ceremonially unclean. So camp outside the camp seven days. Whoever has killed a person, whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves, you and your captives, on the third day and on the seventh day. And we had those procedures in an earlier chapter. That's why they had the red heifer ashes mixed with the living water 
in the uh, purification ritual there. You shall purify for yourselves every garment, every article of leather, and all the work of uh, goat's hair and all the articles of wood. So Eliezer the priest said to the men of war who had gone to the battle, this is the statute of the law which the Lord had commanded Moses. Only the gold and the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that can stand the fire, you shall pass through the fire, and it shall be clean. But it shall be purified with water for impurity. Whatever cannot stand the fire, you shall pass through the water. And you shall wash your clothes on the seventh day and be clean, and afterward you may enter the camp." So this, these are the instructions then for Israel's ritual cleansing and the, uh, from the defilements of war. From the defilements of war. And let me just say, we don't have the ritual purity today. We don't have any of the ceremonial uh, ritual that Israel had in the Old Testament. So that all of that is, is not applicable to us. But we do have the realities today related to uh, our soldiers coming back from the battlefield and the, the things they've seen, the things they've done, the, the, uh, the PTSD that they're coming home with and all the things there. I think we ought to pay attention to passages like this and, uh, and find the analogies, find the, the applications that we can draw just by concepts and principles then that... Uh, and uh, the fact that it's the priesthood that's involved means we better have our, our pastors involved, we better have our church members involved and, and really be tending to the spiritual uh, needs, the, the horrors that these uh, soldiers have. Okay, I've got a good friend, he's a pastor. Uh, his son came back from Iraq and, and Afghanistan and, and, and he's still, um, he's, he's not in a good place, okay, mentally, spiritually. And uh, you know, he's saved, he knows the Lord, he knows the Word, but, and he's a pastor's son. But he's really, really um, in, in, in a lot of trouble. So, prayer's there. Alright, so we have it. And by the way, if there's more questions on this, I'm expecting more questions on this. We're just getting started. We've got the whole conquest in front of us when we get to uh, Deuteronomy and, and Joshua. And so there's a whole lot more and the um, modern sensibilities, the modern sensitivities, the modern squeamishness about um, the execution of the enemy is something we have to we have to recognize. That if we if our comfort level has a, is struggling with it, then uh, we just can, if nothing else, recognize that that was then, and they didn't have a problem with it. We are the ones that have adjusted our concept of of war. And if it's maladjusted to reality, then um, maybe we should stop and consider what does it mean if something is maladjusted to reality? That used to be called insanity. <laughs> okay? Um, but what is adjusted to reality? What are the realities of war? What are the realities of a people conquering another people? And the uh, the vulnerabilities of the non-combatants is what I'm saying. Okay, the women and the children. It's not Israel's job to protect the Midianite women and the children. It's the Midianite soldiers' job to protect the Midianite women and the children. And when the Midianite soldiers are dead, the Midianite women and children no longer have the protection that they're supposed to have under the laws of divine establishment. Okay, and it's brutal. And it's not, I'm not advocating that, uh, that the American military adopt such practices today. I think we're long past that. But the distinction between combatants and non-combatants has not always been there the way that it is today. And if we're not aware of that, I think we do ourselves a disservice because we fail to read history appropriately. Anyway, and then you end up with non-historical people. If they're non-historical, they're generally hysterical. Have you noticed that? The less historical, the more hysterical. And they just get so wrapped up about, oh, this genocide and God's a moral monster and blah, blah, blah. How can they, how can they dash the little ones against the rocks? How can they? Okay. Um, so stay tuned. We got a whole lot more coming up. Let's talk about booty. <laughs> booty. Okay? 
This is a, we talked about booty a few months ago, I think. Carmen was asking me what booty was. And I didn't know the German word. Um, and she didn't know the English word. But this is the plunder. This is the like pirate's booty or soldier's booty. or This is to the victor go the spoils, okay? which has normally been the case for human history. And, and, and what else are you going to do with it? Okay? Because the Midianite men are all dead, the women are all dead, the cities are all burned. Unless it is dedicated to destruction, as Jericho was, unless God puts it under the ban, in which case all of it is consumed in fire, nobody, uh, no human is going to benefit from it because God has determined that all of it is going to be consumed. Unless it's put under the ban, then the booty is the is the reward. It's the it's the um, the, the the bonus pay for the uh, the soldiers that that did the work. So uh, verses twenty five through thirty one, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, "You and Eleazar the priest and the heads of the fathers' households of the congregation take account of the booty that was captured, both of man and of animal." And divide the booty between the warriors who went out to battle and all the congregation. So the the ground troops have a, a portion, and then the population at large has a portion. Levy a tax for the Lord from the men of war who went out to battle, one in five hundred of the persons, and of the cattle, and of the donkeys, and of the sheep. Take it from their half, and give it to Eleazar the priest as an offering to the Lord." Then from the sons of Israel's half, that is the civilian population, the nation at large that did not go out to the war, you shall take one drawn out of every 50 of the persons. So the tax is 10 times higher for the non-combatants, for the civilians. Okay? They're going to they're benefit, but they're going to be taxed a whole lot more. Of the cattle, of the donkeys, of the sheep, from all the animals, give them to the Levites, who keep charge of the tabernacle of the Lord. Somebody asked last night, well, you know, where do they get all these bulls and goats and sheep and how you know, they got to sacrifice so many of them, especially on the, the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. But in any of the feasts, they're, they're, they're killing a lot of animals. Where, where are the Levites getting these animals? Well, here's some of the supply. They're getting taxed. And they're receiving the tax revenue of these animals. So Moses and Eliezer, the priest, did just as the Lord had commanded. Moses... The booty that remained from the spoil which the men of war had plundered was 675,000 sheep, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, and the virgin girls, uh, 32,000. And so half went to the troops, half went to the civilians. The half, the portion that went to the troops was 337,500. The Lord's levy of sheep was 675. That's one out of every 500. Of the cattle, 36,000, the Lord's levy was 72. The donkeys, 30,500, the Lord's levy was 61. Of the human beings, as the virgin girls, there were 16,000, from which the Lord's levy was 32. So Moses gave the levy, which was the Lord's offering, to Eleazar the priest, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. That's half of the booty. The other half, this went to the sons of Israel, the civilian population. And again, it's the same number, of sheep, cattle, donkeys, and, and virgins. But then the tax is a whole lot higher. So from the sons of Israel's half, Moses took one drawn out of every 50. Both of man and of animals gave them to the Levites who kept charge of the tabernacle of the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so I put that in the notes there in point six. The military forces received 50%, civilian congregation 50%. The Lord's booty tax was 0.2% for the military forces, and it was 2% for the civilian congregation's share. Thus the Lord's total booty tax, 1.1%, of which the civilian congregation pays the 1% portion and the military forces pay the 0.1% portion of the tax. You have the raw numbers under 0.7%. Civilian and military, cattle, civilian and military, donkeys, civilian and military, virgins, 320 virgins for the civilian tax and 32 virgins for the military tax.
The military also kept their cash bonuses without the 50% sharing agreement with Israel. So the animals, the slaves, they they were split 50-50 between the troops and the civilian population. However, notice when we get to verses 48 through 54, the officers who were over the thousands, the captains of thousands, captains of hundreds, approached Moses. They said to Moses, your servants have taken a census of men of war who are in our charge and no man of us is missing. So we have brought as an offering to the Lord. Can you imagine that? This massive victory and not one casualty. That's, that's amazing. So we have brought as an offering to the Lord what each man has found, articles of gold, armlets, bracelets, signet rings, earrings, necklaces, uh, to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. And so Moses and Eliezer the priest took the gold from them, all kinds of wrought articles, all the gold of the offering which they offered up to the Lord from the captains of the thousands, captains of the hundreds, 16,750 shekels. The men of war had taken booty, every man for himself. So uh, Moses and Eliezer the priest took the gold from the captains of the thousands of the hundreds, brought it to the tent of meeting as a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord. So I believe that the military kept these cash bonuses without the 50% sharing agreement and then brought a free will grace gift offering to the Lord out of that booty. All right, well that gets us to chapter 32. And tomorrow night we'll come back for day 71. Day 71 we will cover numbers 32 and 33. And this is close. This is really close. I think beyond that we've got just uh, day 72. Tell you what, let me pull this up. I don't do this often enough. This is the whole calendar for the year. As you can see, we've we're nearly complete now with week 10. And when we get down, there's day 70. We just finished. Day 71 we'll do tomorrow. And then day 72 is our last day in the book of Numbers. So at the 9.30 hour Sunday morning, we'll wrap up the book of Numbers with Numbers 34 through 36. And then at the 11 o'clock hour, we will get our first look at Deuteronomy. All right? It's a roller coaster. It's a rocket ship, but God's taken us through it. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your truth. We pray, Father, for your hand of blessing as we continue to study, especially, Father, the idea. Some of this is, is so alien to us. We wouldn't dream of, of uh, kidnapping 32,000 virgin girls. The whole idea of, of plundering booty, the whole idea of executing the non-combatants, um, some of this is, is uh, hard for us in our modern sensitivities. So Father, we ask that you would open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts. Ask that you would give us an understanding of the day and age in which these things did take place. An understanding of your grace that was in operation through all of this. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.